You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. I've got something for you today uh, that is, uh, it is a strange by nature sort of fact here, but also a little bit of a storytelling time that was inspired by, uh, by Rachel. Oh, no. <laughs> does it have to do with the ocean or Australia? It doesn't. It doesn't, in fact. That's amazing. Uh, you'll possum? understand. If, if, if you listen to some of the previous episodes, you'll understand. So okay. many years ago, as a young naturalist, I worked at a place called Warner Nature Center. And sadly, it no longer exists today. But uh, great times were had there. And I, I learned so many things when I was, I was starting out in my career. And I was reminded of one of those things by something Rachel said in a previous episode. And I'm not going to say what it is right away, though. Uh, first, I want to tell you about a bit of a mystery. Uh, there was a library at this nature center, and there was these cabinets, and in those cabinets was a large cylindrical leather case, much like a, a giant hat case. Okay, so sort yeah, of wider was... wider than tall? Yeah, I don't think you could fit... I mean, you could fit a sombrero in there if it wasn't too large of a sombrero. Mm-hmm. It was maybe like 8 inches high and like 24 inches across. Okay. okay. So it was kind of a a curious uh, case there. And I asked the director, you know, about what was inside. And he said, oh, this is really cool. It's a parabolic listening device. What? So oh. being being a big fan of spy stories, I had yeah. to check this out. Let <laughs> me, let me descri- describe this for you. Inside was uh, about a two-foot-around clear plastic dish, like a little mini radar dish. Uh, okay. There was also a piece that looked like a handgun. Uh, but at the end was a microphone. So you would insert this gun piece through the hole in the dish, and the microphone would sit right at the focal point of the parabolic dish. You then plugged headphones into a jack on the handle, and you then had super hearing. So this is like exactly what you would see in one of these spy movies where someone's like, you know, hiding behind a bush in the park, like trying to listen in on a a covert conversation. Yeah, just, you know, let me put up this satellite right above my head so I can hear everything. Yeah, it's a little obvious. It was clear plastic, but, you know, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you might get noticed. Um, Maybe. So what I found out, the reason they had this is they'd gotten it uh, a while back and they had, uh, for a good while, had it mounted on a pole, or they could mount it if they were going to use it that day, on a pole about 150 feet uh, from the building, and they ran a wire from that pole permanently uh, into the building, where they then ran those wires into a stereo receiver, and then had large speakers mounted to the wall of the classroom. So, if you were teaching a class about frogs in the spring, you could point this at the pond across the driveway, and then go in the classroom and switch on the speakers, and you'd have this amplified sound of the pond in the classroom while you were teaching. That is super cool. That's really Yeah, you can actually point out different frog sounds and whatnot. And I had the same reaction that Victoria did, where I'm like, this is super cool. Um, and I had kind of knew the story about what this was before I took it out of storage. So what I was wondering was, 
why on earth are we no longer using such a cool piece of tech, right? Absolutely. Well, why would you not? It's there I, and it sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, it did sound awesome, but I, I only wondered that for about five seconds after opening the case. Everything mm. looked perfect. The plastic was uncracked. The wires were all there. It had been put away beautifully. It was also clear someone had, just moments before I opened the case, violently puked all over <laughs> the inside of the case. The stench was overwhelming. But here's the weird thing. There was nothing inside but the device. No one had actually puked in this case. But the smell of vomit was just overpowering when I opened this up, and I promptly put it away. Uh, a, <laughs> yeah. few months, a few months later, I was working in the wood shop uh, in the same building, making like a, some sort of prop like for a summer camp. As you and do, there yes. was the smell again. Hmm. I could smell this, this vomit smell, and I'm going, what is going on? And this time, I had a tool in my hand, like a, a nut driver. Okay. And uh, sort of, I saw like a screwdriver with like a plastic handle and a little metal bit sticking out. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, is this, what, could this be like, and I kind of sniffed the handle and I'm like, oh my God, ah. <laughs> it's like clear plastic handle. It's like a colored, you know, like a red plastic handle or something like that. Smelled like vomit as well. So luckily for me, being a curious person, the internet already existed way back then. So I asked if anyone else was online and fired up the modem and logged on to the internet at a blazing fast 28.8 bits per second. And what I discovered was that the plastic tool handles and the plastic of the dish were both emitting butyric acid, which oh. is the same substance oh, that yeah, Rachel mentioned that with the ginkgo. being found in ginkgo seeds. So uh, oh. what's it doing in there, Right. Uh, these plastics were probably made out of something called CAB or CAB. It's cellulose acetate uh, butyrate, butyrate, I believe. Uh, basically, to make this sort of plastic, you chemically modify cellulose from wood pulp. So it's actually the plastic is made out of wood, which is very that's cool. That's so good. And you treat it with this butyric acid. And that's all well and good until the plastic starts to degrade from either like getting wet or being exposed to heat, like being left in a hot cabinet for many years. Mm -hmm. And basically when it starts to degrade, it re-releases the acid and that acid smells like puke. Oh no. Pretty nasty. Uh, in nature, butyric acid is the smell of puke. Also it's found in body odor and also rancid butter, all of which are just lovely mm. smells, right? So good. Um, yeah. There's actually the name of butyric it actually comes from the word butter. Uh, it was discovered by a French chemist. So like uh, one of the esters that is, is found in, in, in butter was kind of how it got its name. Uh, there is another place, though, that we come across it, and that is in Parmesan cheese. So it is one what? of the strong smells in Parmesan cheese. And you're like, wait, wait, hold on. I like Parmesan, Parmesan. cheese. Is, it's delicious, right? Yeah. Have you ever smelled it, though? Yes. Now, when you say you like Parmesan, Rachel, do you like like a nosh, nice block that you're like shaving off or grinding up? Or do you buy like the, the green can of powdered stuff at the store? I'm, I'm buying the stuff in the deli. It's already pre like shaved or whatever, but it's not. It's, it's not, not the powder in the can. can. 
not the powder. No. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. <laughs> uh, I, I, from what I understand, I think the the smell is more pronounced in that fake powdered cheese uh, uh, because it's kind of one of the, they may be even add it in there and that's what makes it taste like Parmesan. Uh, whereas mm. it's one of a several different compounds found in like a, like a good cheese. Uh, so there is a fun thing you can do little experiments to do at home. If you want to do a little smell test, get some things that smell like apples and oranges and whatnot and blindfold somebody gets, especially if you have some of that powdered Parmesan is really great. <laughs> uh, maybe one of the only good uses for it and put it in like a little dish or a, a little canister or something and have blindfolds someone and say, like, now I'm going to have you smell an apple. Can you smell the apple? And they're like, yep. Now I'm going to have you smell the orange. Can you smell that? Yep. And goes, now I'm going to have you smell vomit. And if you put the Parmesan under their nose, they'll be <laughs> like, oh, oh, God, gross, vomit. Why you, you know, because you're primed to think of that. And it's pretty interesting that, you know, <laughs> our, if you told someone next is Parmesan cheese, they might go, oh, lovely Parmesan cheese. But so a lot of it's kind of in our head mm-hmm. of what we think smells are going to be bad. And our perception of it kind of frames our reaction to it, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. So uh, people have used this for different stuff over the years. I found one reference online. I had no idea. Do you guys know the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society? I have heard of them. Absolutely not. They're pretty, one might say, radical group of of people who are like out trying to stop whaling. Yeah. Uh, they make Greenpeace look like, uh, you know, super laid back. Uh, apparently, yep. they have made, um, like, smell bombs out of this to, like, throw Oof. or I don't know how to get them onto whaling ships to, like, cover the ships in this horrible smell and try to drive uh, whaling ships away from the whales, which mm. is pretty amazing. Um, but the smell isn't all bad uh, because, obviously, like, cheese, it smells good like or cheese. tastes good. Yeah. There are different esters of butyric acid and some of them are perceived by humans as pleasant and are used even in perfumes and as foods so some of them smell like pineapple or apples or pears or apricots um and really interesting another one of the esters is actually used in prescription hormonal birth control for women oh. uh, hmm. presumably not to make it smell good but it, it has something to do with body chemistry and actually is effective for birth control so uh, butyric acid isn't just the smell of vomit or ginkgo trees. Uh, it is actually part of many of the foods we eat mm-hmm. and the products we use. So when I heard you talk about that, I was like, I, I got to share a little bit more about it. Oh, that's, that's great. That's so cool. Great. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we will have something special from Rachel. <laughs> hey, everyone. You may know that we do not. Wait, I, Victoria, Victoria, I thought it was Rachel's turn to do a segment. Oh, yeah, we're oh, doing an ad. Right. Oh, an ad? Yeah. For what? Yeah, uh, for, for us. For us, for Patreon. Oh, for us. Well, that seems good. Yeah, so. Seems good. Go for it. What I was going to say, what was I going to say? You know, we don't do this podcast for money, but we do have some overhead expenses, you know, website fees, uh, various kinds of stuff that we, we got to pay to keep this show going and keep you entertained. But we did start a Patreon a few months ago, and uh, it would be really great if you guys could help us out there. Yeah, if you head on over to patreon.com slash strangebynature, you can actually find out more about our Patreon program. You can become a member at three different levels and the different benefits 
uh, depending on what level you join at. And I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out with us just a little bit more and maybe hear some bonus things that are strange, but not necessarily long enough or strange enough to make it into the podcast? Well, or things that you did hear in the podcast, you know, I'm actually going to be taking uh, one of the times Rachel started to laugh maniacally and uncontrollably and <laughs> turn it into a ringtone you can download for your phone. <laughs> but only if you're a member of what we'd like to call the Society of Strange. So head on over to Patreon. What's that address again, Kirk? That is patreon.com slash strange by nature. One more time, patreon.com slash strange by nature. Check out more information about it there. Yeah, come join us. We're strange, you're strange. Let's go. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I realized I did a little math. Scary. Uh-oh. Uh, there it is. I realized that the next couple episodes that we're going to be uh, recording are actually airing in October. That is correct. And as an October baby, having been born in October, I have to roll with the spooky season. So my top my topics for the next month or so are going to be in spooky spirits. All right. All right. And we have, we also, we should, a great time to remind people, we do have a Halloween show coming up as well. I've been making plans. <laughs> I have so Excellent. many thoughts. <laughs> well, you've got like a pre-Halloween treat for us here, Rachel. Is that what I'm hearing? For the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have like some kind of spooky themes going through. I'm really excited. Oh my excited. gosh. So you're just, <laughs> you're just going full Halloween all October. Yes. Go for it. What do you got? Okay, so I thought that to start us off, why not go for a classic? Um, this particular, it is an animal, uh, is both a symbol of Halloween and it has a little taste of monster. It is the Desmond- Desmondus rotundus, also known as the common vampire bat. Ah, uh, that's where I thought you might be going. Oh, nice. Yes. Uh, It was first described by Western science in 1810 by a French naturalist um, with the last name St. Hilaire. Uh, And generally speaking, the common vampire bat is located from southern Mexico all the way down to Argentina and Chile. Okay. Now, this little bat, it has this little... It's a le- little leaf nose bat, so it has a really flat nose that looks like a scrunched up leaf. And it is about three and a half inches long with about a seven inch wingspan. Uh, and they weigh anywhere from about 25 to 40 grams, which is a pretty big oh, that's, yeah, range. Well, yeah, but I mean, you said pretty big range. I thought you were going to say it's pretty big. And I'm like, what seems very really small to me. That's, that's not, tw- I mean, for... For those people who don't know, a gram is the weight mm-hmm. of one cubic centimeter of water, which I'm sure we all know what that feels like, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, it, it's also the weight, incidentally, of one large paperclip. So yeah. some of these bats are as, li- as light as 25 paperclips. That's, that's really small. It's so small. Um, they are short-haired. They have silver gray hair on their underside with darker hair on its back. It has a really deeply grooved uh, lower lip in order to help 
uh, bring in blood. Suck your uh, blood. And... Yes, let us be the <laughs> vampire we want to be. Oh, we're um, not going to do the whole thing in this voice, are we? No. Uh, okay, great. So it has a really specialized clawed thumb, and actually, so there are three different bats that are three vampire bats, actually. Ooh. Um, One, two, <laughs> three. I'll stop. I'll stop. Uh, so it has a clawed thumb, and it actually, one way you can determine it, the common vampire bat from the other two, is it has a much longer thumb claw than the other two. The, do. the uncommon vampire bat? Uh, the they are the hairy legged vampire bat and the white winged vampire bat. <laughs> okay, I'm just, I'm just uh, picturing a vampire shaving and stuff. It's fine. It's fine. Keep and going. They just miss their legs. Yeah, right. That's totally. <laughs> forgot to shave my legs this morning. Um, Go on. So the clawed thumb on the tip of each wing because. A wing is really specialized, like, hand or arm for a bat, pretty much, because it's uh, skin that is connected to each of the fingers, so their thumb is the tip part of their uh, wing. Anyway, um, so that actually helps them to climb onto prey and help them take off from the ground. Uh they have the fewest teeth among any bats. Any guesses how many teeth they have? It's sort of surprising that they don't have too Ooh. many teeth. They gotta have mm-hmm. at least two. You're right. Right. I mean, they're mammals, and mammals, you, know, you should have a bunch of teeth. I mean, I'm gonna say they have 20. I'm going to Kirk, you're closer. Nothing, it's, guess very low. I'm gonna say though. eight. Yeah. You're going to say eight? It's 18. Oh, ah. I was close. Mm-hmm. So they have the fewest um, uh, among bats, which is crazy. Huh, okay. Also, the fact that other bats have more teeth kind of didn't know about that. Um, learning always happens when you least expect it. Uh, so it's a vampire bat, so it does have really sharp incisors on its t- upper jaw. And uh, these are always I love, razor well, I love that sharp. We, we're at episode, what is this, 35, and Rachel is still doing hand gestures. <laughs> you know they can't see you, Rachel. I do know this, yes, but it's also <laughs> really fun to give to you guys just like sharp incisors. <laughs> anyway, okay. Moving so on. they stay super sharp uh, because those teeth actually do not have enamel, so they don't have an enamel coating to help protect oh. them. But that's why how they stay razor sharp is because they huh. don't have enamel. Real weird. I would think that that would make them wear down faster. But maybe the wearing down is what keeps them sharp. Somehow. I think so. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, also unusual for bats, they have excellent eyesight. The better to find you with. Oh, yes. Beat me to it. Yep. There it is. Uh, there it is. This is one of three bats that are hematophab. Phagic, or that they feed ex- exclusively on blood, uh, specifically warm-blooded animals. Um, surprise, surprise, a vampire bat eats blood. Uh, in order to do that, the reason why it's actually really uncommon for especially mammals to eat blood in general is in order to do that, 
your body has to figure out how to not overwhelm the kidneys or the bladder because it's a purely liquid diet because uh, you can't be peeing all of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to deal with potential iron poisoning. So if you have too much iron, uh, that could be an issue. And you also have to deal with a ton of extra protein that comes in. So those are a lot of challenges that are really tough for a body to get through. So uh, most animals don't do it. Um, And there's a couple different theories out there why the vampire bat has started to do that. But I'm not going to get into those theories very much. Um, Mainly because there's. I mean, you also you also burst into burst into flames if you're in sunlight. Yes. Uh, you can be killed by a stake through the heart. Don't like garlic no, very garlic. much. Don't like yeah. garlic. Yeah, imagine. I mean, ugh, so ugh. many good Italian dishes you're missing out on. Just gone. You have to count every grain of salt if it's spread in front of you. Um, <laughs> so that's some of the reasons why it's very uncommon. Uh, the vampire, the common vampire bat actually feeds more on mammals than the other two species. Uh, the other two, the hairy-legged and the white-winged vampire bats, they seem to prefer feeding on birds more than mammals. Uh, really? The common vampire bat actually goes more for livestock than it does uh, wild animals uh, right, and actually right. prefers horses over cattle if given the option. Um, and now that we're here, we're talking about it, how they hunt uh, at night because they are still... Uh, nocturnal animals they use echolocation and they use smell in order to track prey uh, especially looking for that cattle or livestock and they go up to five miles away from their roost wow once they find a target they either will land on it uh the target is obviously going to be asleep uh they either land on it or land near it and jump onto it from the ground and then they use heat sensors in that really flat leaf-shaped nose to find blood vessels that are near the skin. Uh, They will then use those really sharp incisors to bite and make a small flap um, on the skin so that way there's blood that pools up and they start lapping up the blood. Their blood has an anticoagulant. I can't say that word. Uh, anyway, maybe uh, you just like whenever you have a word that you need to say that you don't know how to pronounce, you just pause and be like, Victoria, you just fill that in. Victoria, just what is the word? <laughs> Their saliva has an anticoagulant. There it is. And that keeps the blood from clotting. So it just keeps going. And they just keep lapping up the blood until uh, they're full. Uh, now, they have to eat at least every two to three days. If they go beyond that, the vampire bat will starve. There's actually been evidence of them sharing a meal with other bats in their roost, uh, mostly female bats because they're polygynous, uh, which means that it's one male and multiple females. Um, but they all support each other fairly decently, which means that uh, if one maybe hasn't been able to find a meal, uh, they will help each other out and actually regurgitate some blood meal into their uh, friend's mouth, I guess. Tasty. And be, so that way they're sharing. That's what friends <laughs> are for. Uh, for blood times. But never. 
Um, Gosh, that's just horrifying. Isn't it just horrifying? Now, if that wasn't weird enough, more recently, scientists have discovered that vampire bats can actually run on the ground. Oh, that's disturbing. Yeah. I bet that looks super weird. Actually... It's right. super weird because most bats have actually lost the ability to maneuver on land very well. Right. Like if they're on the land, they're like stuck. Uh, they can't, they have to be able to fly off, but that's about it. They can't like walk. Uh, but vampire bats actually use their really strong forelimbs. I talked about their uh, thumb claws. There's this pad right underneath it and it allows the bats to have this weird like loping gait. Um, and they use their strong forelimbs at, in their wings to actually run and they can run up to 2.5 miles per hour which okay, i mean so I, I i could get away yeah yes. i mean it's not fast but it's pretty it's pretty fast for a very small mammal that generally speaking you wouldn't expect to be able to run on land uh but that's what i have for you in this spooky season Amazing. Look forward to more for the rest of the month. <laughs> of course. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, it'll be Victoria. So I'm going to take you to Brazil in the 19th century. And this was a time when European time naturalists... Oh, sorry, what, Rachel? Oh, time travel. Time I'm travel. For it. Let's go. Yes. Uh, this was a time when uh, European naturalists and explorers were kind of combing the area. And they would talk to local people, and sometimes they would hear tell of a strange creature called the Minho Cow. It lived in tunnels mm. underground or possibly in the water. Oh. Okay. Do you what? know where I'm going with this, Kirk? I, I, I might. I'm, I, if it is, I'm going to be super excited. Okay. Um, it was snake-like in form, but in some ways more resembled a gigantic earthworm, except that it had black scales on its body and mobile horns on its head. So oh, This is definitely not what I was okay. thinking of. <laughs> I'd be interested later to hear no what I was you were thinking of. Is. No, I, I... Okay, taking notes for next week. All right. <laughs> I'm good. For two weeks from now. Good. Um, depending on whose story you believed, it might be 20 meters long or up to 80 meters. That's uh, 65 to 260 feet. For... That's too long. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's too yeah. long. It was said to pull cows and other livestock under the water and devour them. Now, oh my God. that's not great. Yeah. I know. This creature is considered mythical, <clears throat> but just like with the phoenix that Rachel talked about a few weeks ago, this one may actually be grounded in a real life animal. One that is even weirder, dare I say, than a flamingo. Oh, okay. Listening. Yeah, so the most... I'm nervous. There are, there are a couple ideas about what could have inspired this, but the most likely candidate for the source of the Minyakao legend is the world's most elusive amphibian, the Sicilian. Ah, all right. Sounds like a person Don't from more. Sicily, but that's spelled... Sure does. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, Princess Bride right yes. now, but go on. <laughs> it's spelled C-A-E-C-I-L-I-A-N. That is okay. indeed different. Yeah. Uh-huh. So most people know that frogs and toads and salamanders and newts are amphibians, but a lot of people have not heard of Sicilians. 
That is probably because they are extremely hard to find and not a lot is known about them by science. Yeah, I have no idea what this is. So they are completely legless. This is also kind of harks back to your legless lizards episode, Rachel. Yeah, it does. Completely legless. They live almost entirely underground. They dig tunnels and most of them are blind and deaf. They have ring-shaped folds all along the length of their body, which really does make them look a lot like an earthworm, earthworm, especially the smaller ones. And the bigger ones can look a bit like snakes or eels. Um, Another weird thing, so as naturalists, we often teach kids about reptiles and amphibians and the differences between them. One of the things we usually say is that reptiles have scales and amphibians don't. Well, as we often talk about on this podcast, podcast nature likes to laugh at our puny categories that we come up with. Most Sicilians have scales. Of course they do. Of course they do. Now, why would they not? (laughs) You know, they are totally different than reptile scales. So reptile scales are made of keratin, which is the same stuff that the outer layer of the skin is made of. Sicilian scales are usually embedded in those ring-like folds in their skin, and they're made actually of the mineral calcite. Wow. Yeah. Weird. That's... Yeah. What? Calcite? So it's like little tiny flakes of rock under their skin, as best I can understand. Gosh, that's weird. I mean, doesn't calcite... If I remember right, like it, it reacts with acid and gets like soapy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's under it's embedded in the skin, so it's not gonna well, yeah. dissolve if they happen I'm just to, trying to go remember through a puddle which, of vinegar. What calcite is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah, why not? you would you know, usually you're not swing, swimming in hydrochloric acid, so you're probably probably okay. You're yeah. probably fine, yeah. So they're found exclusively in wet tropical areas. And because they live underground their entire lives, they've evolved so that their eyes are either very small or totally hidden under the skin or even under the skull. And so they're basically limited to sensing light and dark. They're also thought not to be able to hear, but they do have a great sense of smell, including this pair of tentacles in between their eyes and their nose. So if you're thinking back to the Miyakao legend, like the the horns that are movable... Oh, I don't like that. So they're thought to help, like, help extra with the sense of smell. Yeah. I mean, they already had a detriment with no real good eyesight or hearing. They had to have an excellent sense somewhere. Yes. And you may also not be surprised to hear uh, something they have in common with many other amphibians is that they have a toxic substance on their skin that they exude to protect themselves. Wow. Sure. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Uh, they have very strong skulls to help them burrow through the soil, and they have many sharp teeth. And they're thought to eat earthworms and other underground invertebrates to the extent that scientists can even figure out what they eat, which is not all that much. Yeah. But how how big are these? Well, I'm getting there. Um, okay. I'll get there. I'll get there. I'm, I'm picturing this really long thing that's still horrifying, by the way. <laughs> Um, before I get to the length, I want to talk about something else that's pretty strange, which is that all of them use internal fertilization, which some other amphibians do, but not most of them. 
And about yeah. 75% of Sicilians actually give birth to live young. Huh. Now, there are a handful of frog and salamander species that do this, but they are pretty rare. Most amphibians just lay their eggs in the freshwater, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the tadpoles hatch out. But Sicilians that have live young, basically the eggs hatch inside the mother's oviduct. And then they, <laughs> the way they survive is they have these special teeth and they scrape cells off the lining of the oviduct and eat them. Yum. Yikes. Oh, but it gets more special. Painful. Okay. So even for the... Let me pick my jaw off my... (laughs) Oh my God. Even for the egg-laying species, actually there is maternal care. So this is also somewhat unusual for amphibians. So they guard the eggs. And then there is one egg-laying species that feeds its young after they hatch with a special layer of fatty skin on the outside of the mother's body, which again, the young scrape off with their teeth. Oh, what? Sounds you should have saved this for the painful. Halloween episode. My gosh. <laughs> and some species are born as larvae, like, like a tadpole, but some have already metamorphosed to the adult form by the time they hatch, although little bitty. And uh, eggs and larvae are not usually laid directly in the water. They're usually laid in damp soil that's kind of near water. And so larvae do not even spend all their lives in the water, which is also strange huh. for amphibians. Yeah. Right. So, you know, with some of these descriptions, you can maybe see how the legend of the Minya cow does resemble a Sicilian. We've got the scales, the tentacles, the burrowing underground. Our real hang-up is, as you mentioned, Kirk, the size. So okay. the smallest species are, in fact, the size of worms. So you could easily mistake a Sicilian huh. for a worm. The largest ones... Okay. I would say only get to 1.5 meters. That's about five feet. That, that is still very long. But okay. it is not 80 meters not, or even 20 meters. Well, and not like going to take down Ooh. livestock or something. No. So, you know, this could be just exaggeration the way the way happens. Am I, or, you know, there's a possibility that it could have been a now extinct or even undiscovered larger species of Sicilian. Who knows? Sure. Horrifying. Sure. Am I longer than a Sicilian? A little bit. You got a couple inches on a Sicilian. I'll take it. I mean, Rachel's more than 1.5 meters tall. Yeah. Yes. Probably. I'm not probably. Good <laughs> I'm not good with the metric system. I'm working oh, on it. Yeah, you're right, Kirk. Okay. Actually, so it said 1.5 meters, parentheses, 5 feet, but... 1.5 meters is less than five feet, isn't it? Not that much. Uh, it's 4.9. Okay. Pretty close. But Rachel's still, Rachel is still uh, more than 4.9 feet. Not that the listeners really care about Rachel's exact height. No. But hey, it, it's fun. But it is, it is our standard unit of measure on the show. Yes. So uh, they, are, yes. they are slightly less than one Rachel. I would like to say, I found out you were wrong, Kirk. I am oh, I, I bigger know. than the giant armadillo. I heard about this. <laughs> yes, you are bigger than a giant armadillo. Victory anyway, in our time. Continue, Victoria. Well, <laughs> and that's all I have about Sicilians for you today. It's horrifying. I want to see so many pictures of what a Sicilian looks like if they are available. Well, are it's C A E C I L I A N. That's correct. The image search and you can see all the pictures you want excellent i'm gonna do that because this is horrifying in my brain right now 
And we will thank you, talk to you next week. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.